You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. My history can beat up your politics. President Bush in recent weeks has pointed his cannon at the news media, specifically the New York Times, about leaking details of a program that watched the international financial transactions of Americans. But is Bush the first president to go to war with the media? In the podcast today, we examine that question and find that many presidents have coddled, charmed, manipulated, and yes, in some cases, attacked the media. The problem with today's politics is that it's discussed in a vacuum. Nobody brings up the history that led to today's current events. So I do. In my podcast, I take the politics of today and smash them and bash them with yesterday's history. The politics comes out different. You come out with a better understanding of today's current events. I'm not a talking head. I'm not a pundit. I'm Bruce Carlson. Listen to me as history beats up on politics. My history can beat up your politics. The first meaningful record of a president actually having an operation to even benevolently manipulate the press is Abraham Lincoln. He hired a former Illinois editor, and his name was John Nicoly. Because of his background as an editor, he's called upon, much as modern press secretaries are, to separate the wheat from the chaff for journalists seeking guidance on stories. The editor of the monthly magazine, The Century, consulted him about anecdotes and other hints of startling disclosures. Uh... His daughter and biographer, Helen Nicoly, said he would usually cast doubt on stories and discourage their publication. But once in a while, he would tell the editor they were interesting and important and should be published. So a kind of massaging of the press, even back in the Lincoln administration. Theodore Roosevelt was one of the first U.S. presidents to use the press as a frequent means of communicating with the public. He established close personal relationships with journalists. There's even a story that one rainy day at the White House, Roosevelt saw a group of stalwart reporters huddled next to their regular post at the White House gate in the pouring rain. Roosevelt could tell they were miserable, so he had the staff set aside a room in the White House specifically for the press. Roosevelt was able to take care of the reporters and grant them very good access. And in return, he gained some good press a form of presidential manipulation of the press. Woodrow Wilson is actually the president who invented the formal press conference. That, in a way, is a form of manipulation because Wilson was seeking to increase the visibility of the presidential office and to somewhat direct the agenda questions and who got it invited. His first press conference was in 1913. 125 reporters showed up, but Wilson would not agree to be quoted 
It was all off the record, and only reporters were allowed in the room. But later, these press conferences would come back to haunt him. Uh, during the development of the League of Nations, Wilson gave up the practice of speaking to the press and took his case for the League directly to Congress and to the people and established a committee on public information to dispense his propaganda. Franklin Delano Roosevelt used charm and coddled the press. After the stiff and stuffy Herbert Hoover, the press corps was excited about the new president's personal charm was his main method of manipulation. Presided over a press room with ease and developed good relations with the media. In the months directly following his inauguration, the president enjoyed a honeymoon period second to none. The only point where the press departed was in the president's proposal to pack the Supreme Court. Okay, I want to talk about John Kennedy. Now, this is interesting because John Kennedy, widely perceived as very charismatic, that uh, had very good relations with the press. However, for all his personal charisma, he actually behaved in a way as if he viewed the press as an obstacle to work around. The press routinely complained about Kennedy's use of press conferences, which allowed him to speak over the heads of the reporters and to the American public. Why did he do it? Well, one reason is that despite television's importance in 1962, newspapers were still the most prevalent form of information. And newspapers, particularly in small towns, were owned by the largest business person in the town, usually were slanted Republican. In 1962, the Kennedy administration asked the New York Times and the Washington Post to withhold publication of a story that the Soviet Union was installing medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba. And both papers agreed in the interest of national security. But then, a week later, Kennedy addressed the Newspaper Publishers Association, and he used them as scapegoats. He said, this nation foes have openly boasted of acquiring through our newspapers information they would otherwise hire agents to acquire through theft, bribery, or espionage. Every newspaper now asks itself, with respect to every story, is it news? All I suggest is that you add the question, is it in the interest of national security? This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Well, some reporters were livid. He was criticized publicly by the Los Angeles Times and the Boston Globe for censorship. Now, to be clear, John F. Kennedy 
did not single out any newspaper, did not single out any reporter and sort of take them to the outhouse. It wasn't a direct attack. It was more of a, your anticipated cooperation is expected. But the passage sounds chillingly close to the president's words today. Kennedy's also known to have invited reporters of a very low profile to come over to the White House, and he'd grant them an interview while ignoring the top well-known, famous reporters. Obviously, he correctly thought that these small-time reporters would be so ingratiated that the coverage would be good. In Richard Reeves' book, President Kennedy, Reeves talks about how Kennedy even got a reporter to write a story that he was a speed reader, a legend that even survives today. While Kennedy was a good reader, he wasn't a speed reader. Of course, one cannot talk about Kennedy in the press without talking about Kennedy's affairs and liaisons, which are well-known today, but were not reported at the time. This didn't involve so much direct manipulation because the culture at the time was different. In a 1993 interview in the Washingtonian, Pierre Salinger, Kennedy's press secretary, said journalists once asked him directly about John F. Kennedy's sex life. I said, look, he's the president of the United States. He's got to work 14 to 16 hours a day. He's got to run foreign and domestic policy. If he's got time for mistresses after that, what the hell difference does it make? The reporter laughed and walked out, and that was the end of the story. For sure, Salinger says, I couldn't have gotten away with that in the 90s. And he couldn't. The culture was different. But many people have raised the question of, if there was a second Kennedy term, if some of these scandals would start to have come out, because while it was something that wasn't reported in those days, this president was engaging in so many of these well-known around the Beltway, uh, liaisons and affairs and scandals, etc. It's kind of hard to tell how much of it was the culture and how much of it was reporters not wanting to lose the access with the White House. With Lyndon Johnson, manipulation of the press was more personal. And we know about much of it because Johnson taped his conversations, at least the most important. On the Monday morning of John F. Kennedy's funeral, the new occupant of the Oval Office was on the phone with Joseph Alsop leaning on the powerful Washington Post columnist to oppose his paper's editorial call for a Blue Ribbon Commission to investigate the assassination in Dallas. Johnson preferred that the inquiry be handled by the state of Texas and the FBI. The very next morning, he appealed to Catherine Graham, who was the head of the Washington Post, to put the squeeze on congressional opponents of a civil rights bill by running embarrassing stories about their vacations. They're not working now, he said, and they're not passing anything, and they're not going to, he complained to Graham. So I'd like for the Post editors to be asking these fellows, where did you spend your Thanksgiving holidays? Tell me about it. Was it warm and nice? And have them write a little story on it. In that case, manipulation of the press was used for what we'd all agree is a good thing, passage of a civil rights bill. But it's still manipulation nonetheless, and a very kind of aggressive and personal manipulation. The president picking up the phone and calling editors. He was not above even pulling on purse strings. Pressed by financial backer George Brown, chairman of Brown and Root, to approve a merger of two Houston banks sought by John Jones, president of the Houston Chronicle, Johnson proposed a quid pro quo. I want Jones to write me a letter, he said. And the letter's going to say, Mr. President, I just want you to know that we're making arrangements for special coverage in Washington for the Chronicle. And so far as I'm personally concerned and the paper's concerned, it's going to support your administration as long as you're there. Sincerely, your friend, John Jones. The president dictated a letter to be written by the editor of the Houston Chronicle to him, telling him how great 
he was. Johnson got the letter, and five days later, the merger was approved. In Richard Reeves' book, President Nixon, Nixon's memos to his staff were full of assaults on the press and dreams about punishing the New York Times and putting Brent Bradley in jail and things like that. Some of these dreams never made it to action thanks to the filtering of his instructions by top staff. Not all his little instructions and handwritten corners of memos were taken seriously. But Nixon did go to war on occasion. His press secretary, Ron Ziegler, went out every morning when the Woodward and Bernstein stories about the burglary at Watergate occurred, every morning went out and attacked the Washington Post. Later, Ziegler had to apologize to the reporters when the stories were proven true. And Nixon's FCC harassed TV stations that were routinely critical of the administration. And while Jimmy Carter was elected in the aftermath of Watergate and promised the American people, I'll never lie to you. Bob Woodward points out that Jimmy Carter was just as adept at manipulating the media, though sometimes in an awkward way. Ben Bradley, then the executive editor of Washington Post, and Woodward met with President Carter, who leveled with them off the record about CIA payments to King Hussein of Jordan. While there were reasons for the payments, and the Washington Post agreed in the interest of national security to keep the matter off the record, It didn't exactly fit with the normal Jimmy Carter, you know, foreign policy um, to to pay off a a king in the Middle East. Carter then went on after their meeting to give congressional leaders a different story and chastised Woodward for writing a story based on their meeting. In a way, he was using the Washington Post as a wedge between him and Congress. Woodward was left with a feeling of distaste, which he reports in his book, Shadow, and a sense of foreboding, and here we go again with another president. Carter's secretary, Jody Powell, was one of the few people in the White House who knew about the plan to rescue hostages in Iran, the Desert One operation. Jack Nelson of the Los Angeles Times got wind of the story, called Powell, and asked him whether any rescue attempt was in the works. Powell said no decision had been made on any military move, and it would be more likely something like a blockade if it was undertaken. Of course, as we now know, there was a rescue attempt. Desert One and eight American servicemen were killed in that operation. Powell had to call Nelson that night and said, I lied to you. For the most part, Carter and Powell got a pass. American lives were at stake. Even Nelson, the reporter, in fact, didn't realize the situation and really didn't criticize the administration that much. Nonetheless, Jimmy Carter was using some tools to manipulate the media, and while his actions are very explainable, given the image that he presented during the campaign, some of the events are surprising. Because of Ronald Reagan's popularity, the press didn't need to be directly manipulated or organized so much. No one needed to call up reporters and berate them. But reporters and news organizations were self-censoring to a great extent. Afraid of the negative backlash from viewers from attacking such a popular president, the networks and newspapers took it easy on Reagan. And Reagan made it easy for them. Reagan and his PR apparatus knew how to get their desired message across while satisfying the media's appetite for interesting stories and appealing visuals. The settings of the president's public appearances were carefully controlled, so he stood before flattering backdrops and often too far away for reporters to ask questions. Here are a few examples of the media self-censoring in the Reagan years. The management of CBS News, which is allegedly the most liberal of America's TV networks, ordered its Washington bureau and the 
White House correspondent Leslie Stahl to tone down criticism of Reagan because ordinary Americans supposedly didn't want to hear it. At the New York Times, correspondent Raymond Bonner was pulled off Central America after his expose of a civilian massacre by U.S. trained forces angered administration officials and their right-wing allies at the Wall Street Journal. A camera crew for ABC News filmed troops on their way to Grenada and got confirmation of the impending invasion from U.S. officials in the region, but their executive producer in New York trusted an off-record denial by the Pentagon more than he trusted his own reporters and his own camera film and killed the story. There's downside to this reporting during the Reagan years. When Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev unilaterally halted nuclear testing and invited Reagan to do the same, the halt went unreported in the United States until Gorbachev extended a second and then a third time. And when it was mentioned, it was mentioned and dismissed by ABC News correspondent Sam Donaldson as being nothing but propaganda. President Clinton used a variation of the press conference with his televised town meetings. With those conferences, Clinton managed to sidestep the White House press corps and address questions asked by average citizens, of course, arranged in advance. One such mini-conference featured children and was moderated by PBS's Mr. Rogers. Still, Clinton never reached the self-censorship that Reagan did, the fear of the presidency that the press had during the Reagan years, nor did he engage in the aggressive working of reporters that the Bush administration has. So hearing about how different presidents has manipulated, have manipulated the media, and they all have to a certain extent in the modern era, gives us some perspective on what George W. Bush is doing. What he's doing is not new, although the methods may differ. George Bush's administration is engaged in the manipulation of the media that differs in its targeting not of a general press corps or even of powerful owners and editors, but of individual reporters. Eric Alterman asserts, the Bush team plays a kind of hardball the Clintonians were never able to master. He cites Houston Chronicle reporter Bennett Roth's May 10, 2001 question to Ari Fleischer, then the press secretary, about underage drinking by the president's daughter. Fleischer later called Roth and ominously informed him that his question had been, quote, noted in the building. Complaints have also surfaced over White House treatment of reporters who annoy the administration. Robert Kuttner, co-editor of the Liberal American Prospect, argued in a July 16th Boston Globe piece that the press has given the administration an astonishingly free ride. Kuttner contends the Bush team is very effective at pressuring and isolating reporters who criticize Bush. So working reporters bend over backwards to play fair. If they don't like a reporter, they freeze them out. They don't return the phone calls. A more sinister example, a more sinister example is the case of Jeffrey Kaufman, an ABC News correspondent who posted a story about declining morale among U.S. soldiers in Iraq. According to Washington Post gossip columnist Lloyd Grove, Internet gossip Matt Drudge told Grove that someone from the White House communications shop tipped him to the ABC story and a profile of Kaufman and the Advocate, which is a gay news magazine. Drudge quickly linked the two stories on his popular website, according to New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd on July 20th, first headlining the Advocate piece, ABC News reporter who filed troop complaint story, dash, dash, openly gay Canadian. Eight minutes later, he amended the headline to simply read, ABC News reporter who filed troop complaint story is Canadian. Dowd concluded, beset by problems, 
The Bush team responds by attacking those who point out the problems. Scott McClellan, the White House press secretary at the time, of course, denied the White House had anything to do with the Matt Drudge story. Hearing about the history of presidents and their desire and sometimes ability to manipulate the media doesn't excuse the actions of this White House, but it puts it in perspective. It's not new, and it's something that they're engaging in in a different way that is at least more intense than other presidents have. So when you see President Bush on television attacking the newspapers, understand that while the words may be new and Bush's style may be different, he's engaging in a process that presidents had for at least 100, maybe 150 years. That concludes my podcast. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.